This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This is I'm being an irreverent space hero. <laughs> okay, where are like you? the like my favorite character from the book I read. Okay, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And what? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> uh, what book did you read this week, Andrew? Boy, I read. I want to make sure I get the full name of the of the thing right. Okay, I good. Read, uh, Columbus Day, which I believe is book one. In the Expeditionary Force series by one Craig Allenson. Great. Wonderful. Um, Welcome, other Craig, <laughs> indirectly to our podcast. Yes. We have we have had a few Craig authors on the show, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure how it always works out. This book was recommended to us uh, by Anthony through our Patreon at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Uh, originally, Anthony had just asked if we would record this book, uh, a, a, an episode of our show about this book, our lovely show, he called it. And then um, later when I was messaging him about when we would do the book, uh, he said, it's actually more ridiculous than anything, parentheses, mm-hmm. although it starts with a great premise, close parentheses, I just think it could potentially make for a very entertaining episode. So now that Anthony has set the bar very high for us uh, to make a very entertaining episode. Mm-hmm. Very entertaining. Um, it's worth pointing out for anybody listening for the first time, we talk about a book each week that one of us hasn't read before, and then we tell it to each other and the listener. So it's more specifically every week, one of us reads a book that the one of us yeah. who's talking has never read before, yes. and then that person who's now read the book for the first time talks about it to the other person, and we both have a good laugh, That's usually. Usually. How did you manage to just say most of the words I said, but just with a couple extras thrown in, as if so you were clarifying it? This is what being an editor is. This is the entire <laughs> job of being an editor. Here are all the words you said, but better. These are the yeah. words you said, but I fixed them. <laughs> okay, that's good. I, I fixed them so that other people can read them. Okay, okay. Um, Craig Alanson is a contemporary sci-fi writer. Uh, is it Alanson or Allenson? That's a great question. Let's go with Allenson. Great. That makes okay. more sense. It does. Um, he is a former like IT guy who got into the self-publishing game a couple of years ago. Um, as I understand, he published like three books within a, a very short period of time. Like he probably had them and then like went and published them all. Um, yeah, my my understanding based on reading the frequently asked questions page on his website, because he seems to have a fair amount of bitterness in his heart for the publishing industry and <laughs> its gatekeepers, which is fine. That's like valid. Uh huh. Um, but it sounds like he had basically three-ish books kind of written and was shopping them around and then got tired of doing that and okay. then published them himself and actually seems to have, have carved out kind of a niche on his own. Yes. Which is fine. Good. So he, he has the standalone novel Aces, uh, the Ascendant series, which is like fantasy wizards, um, and then the Expeditionary Force series, which is this book, Columbus Day, and like seven or eight other books it looks so like he does and it's hard this this guy is quite a card it's hard to tell when he's kidding and when he's not <laughs> he does say there will be 14 novels in the expeditionary force series I don't think that's true plus the book 3.5 trouble on paradise novella now that is real that does exist that's a real yeah thing. so i think that maybe this is that's he is telling the truth okay um it's fun. These Patreon wrecks are fun because sometimes we get like <laughs> we get, you know, someone who who is like, you guys need to read Pynchon already, like get to it. And then sometimes it's like, here is a book 
Here's a book with a quote from an Amazon review on the cover. And like, let's and like, let's go because I think for us, I think when we started the show, we did not necessarily expect to dive into this, you know, into random, you know, quasi random corners of of you know, Amazon digital bookshelves. Let's uh-huh. say. Yeah. Um, I think when you were talking about the niche that he car- that he carved out, I was surprised. I found like one or two interviews with him or like Q and As. That seemed to be really heavily promoted through the audiobook space. Um, Columbus Day was nominated for like an audiobook award. It was read by a guy named R.C. Bray, who was an award-winning. Yeah, he did The Martian, right? I maybe I don't know yeah. that that actually makes a lot of sense because I'm going to talk about the voice of this book mm, a bit, mm-hmm. and it immediately reminded me of The Martian, and to I think a little lesser extent, Ready Player One. Okay. Um, but yeah, RC RC Bray did the narration, and it seems like he did the, these audiobooks are pretty well regarded, right? Like, yes, mm-hmm. they they are well done. People seem to find them very entertaining. Um, I think The Martian is also an interesting comparison because that started as like chapters on a guy's website, and then was so popular that it became a book and then a movie <laughs> with your friend and mine, Matt Damon, in it. So Yeah, I feel like there's a... This is... I'm completely pulling this out of the old Yes, book. good. <laughs> More of this. I do feel like if, if I am a publisher or an agent or something who is trying to say, okay, what can get published and succeed within the system of traditional book publishing if i read something that is very strongly voicey and maybe i guess not the most like like the voice is a little immature a little irreverent like if like you take a deadpool type yeah take angle, a deadpool maybe. type do you, what's can you remind me of that guy you went out on a date with last week oh yeah he's more of a deadpool type kind of a deadpool kind of irreverent always talking about his butt um <laughs> But I think I think you maybe as as an agent or something you read that and you bounce off of it because it is I don't want to I don't know if I want to say it seems amateurish but it doesn't seem very like writerly or very like literature-y, if it, that makes well, sense. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting point because I think the uh, the flip side is there's a healthy debate and ongoing conversation around the gatekeeping in publishing that we've talked about before with like writers of color and queer writers and women. Um, and on the flip side, you have like, it's just kind of an irreverent dude having an adventure in an established genre. That's not necessarily going to land on the front page of, of a book review magazine or I don't know, that's a made up. Yeah. Thing. Like, here, so here's, <laughs> here's this Q and a I'm talking about, and he does he does lay out the pros and, and cons such as he believes them to be. Um, he says the advantages of being self-published are you get to keep a greater percentage of your book sale price. There is no publisher taking a big chunk of the revenue and you don't have to pay an agent 15 percent of the money you earn. Um, there is no editor telling you to change your book, make it shorter, cut this, cut that, et cetera. My wife knows my wife. My wife knows <laughs> that having an editor who has never written a best-selling book tell me how to write would not work well for me. YMMV, see below. See, I think that all the commas and clauses in that sentence you maybe could use the edit. I don't know. Um, he's <laughs> you control the title of your book, the cover art, etc. Every decision is yours. You also control the marketing, ad copy, etc. The flip side of that last one in particular seems to seems to be his biggest um, problem with being you know the self publishing game is you have to do and pay for all the marketing. And as people who have over the course of six years, built a book podcast up from nothing, I can say, you know, sometimes I wish somebody else was doing that part. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, so, and then obviously so that folks has folks at HeadGum do handle some they do. of that for us. They but do. Like our social media presence and a lot of our stuff, is, it's, it's all mostly just us. me yeah. me and you try not to censor ourselves. That's yeah, really what it un- is. Unfiltered, just trying to keep it real out here. Yes. Um, so I, I imagine we'll be talking, yeah, as you said, we're going to talk a lot about the voice of the, of the main character in this book because it is, I think, a first-person story for the sure most part, is. right? Okay. Sure is, Craig. Um it is also uh in the military sci-fi space, so I just want to give us some grounding there. 
um, on like where. So the only other military sci-fi thing that exists is aliens. That's well. I did. I also did research, and the only other one that there is is the movie Aliens. Do you know that they turn that they turn Alien into like a high school play in New Jersey? There's like videos. You're about, of it. Okay, are you talking about Alien or are you talking about Aliens? Because I'm talking about Aliens. It's actually. Mm, yeah, maybe it's just Alien. That's different. That's just a horror movie. Sorry. Okay, my bad. Moving on. <laughs> um, so, like, let's let's pretend. Let's create a pretend space where there is other military sci-fi. Andrew, you are right. Aliens is the only one. But like in this other right. space. It's um, a bug hunt. Where I wrote a bunch of Wikipedia articles that I then later read for the mm-hmm. podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes and it's, a, and it's a free encyclopedia anyone can edit, so yes. you can just do that. Please give me five dollars or else they're gonna shut it down. Um they it goes back to eighteen seventy one with the with George Chesney's The Battle of Dorking. And now oh. Andrew <laughs> Uh, he was a. He was I, you know, I never knew that Star Wars was adapted from something, <laughs> but I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad to know that he was a British author, which just to me, like, there's wonderful part. Britain, the general UK scene has some wonderful names for stuff, like dorking, like dorking. Um, and Chesney was in the British Army in the late 19th century. The Franco-Prussian War was going on. The Prussians were killing it. And he was like, man, it would be really bad if we got invaded because I think they would crush us. So Mm -hmm. he wrote like a speculative fiction invasion story um, basically to like to get his views out into the world. Um, You could probably look at it sort of like uh, an antecedent to um, Orwell or something. The movie Aliens. Yes, the movie Aliens. Sorry. and then from there, then you get to stuff like H.G. Wells, which we've talked about War of the Worlds like years ago. Um, jump another 40 years and you get to Heinlein and Starship Troopers, um, which is sort of like Aliens, but I, it's a different genre, I understand. Um, and then Vietnam. And Starship Troopers, is it's important to note the the tonal difference of a Starship Troopers to like an Aliens. Is Starship Troopers is more... It's not parody, but it's less. Well, it's it's more irreverent. The the movie. I actually don't know about the book. Oh, 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 you know oh. what I mean. Like I thought we were talking about the movie. No, the the book Starship Troopers. Um, now maybe Yikes. the movie is playing it up. I don't know. Um, that's in 1959, and then we get to then Vietnam happens, and so some of the military sci-fi starts to explore like forever war kind of stuff. There's actually a book by Joe Haldeman called Forever War. <laughs> Uh, there's this one book I found, Andrew, called Old Man War by John Scalzi. <laughs> and uh, to, like, fight off an alien force to go off and, like, you know, not have to live on a dying Earth, um, humanity waits until they're 75. Anybody age 75 can enlist, and then they get put in a hot young clone body, and then they go fight aliens. <laughs> but presumably they've spent, like, 75 years, like, learning how to fight good. Uh, and like win battles and stuff, so they go off and fight. I don't know what happens in that book, but it sounds so cool. their way they're in training for the all those years. And Unclear, then they get put in I, a don't young hot I, body I don't or know. I don't know, it's just like <laughs> maybe they're just wiser mm. and like really into couponing. Mm. But then they but then they go try to go to McDonald's and order a senior coffee and they can't get and they can't and they get really they're, mad. They're, I know they're everybody. trying to go to dinner at four o'clock and they're like, sorry, you're too young. <laughs> Um, so then there's another uh, sci-fi writer, David Weber, who wrote the Honor Harrington and the Safe Hold series, and he gave an interview about military sci-fi, and this is what he says. Military sci-fi is sci-fi written about a military situation with a fundamental understanding of how military lifestyles and characters differ from civilian lifestyles and characters. It's sci-fi which attempts to realistically portray the military within a sci-fi context. It is not, quote, bug shoots, Andrew. It is about human beings and members of of other species caught up in warfare and carnage. It isn't an excuse for simplistic solutions to problems. And he goes on from there talking about, like, the fact that a lot of majority of readers and even writers of science fiction don't have real combat experience, haven't experienced anything close to the violence that they are, you know, portraying in their book. So something he's out to do as a sci-fi writer is like 
I'm going to just going to explore what it means to use the military as a solution to a problem. Um, and that is separate from like, Hey, let's just write a book about how cool it would be to use to like to do ships instead of horses, like spaceships instead of horses. <laughs> that's an, that's an interesting distinction to draw. So, so as far as we could tell, right, Allenson himself, has never been in the military. I don't believe so. He is uh, in at least one Q and A. I saw he talks about like consulting friends who are vets and and whatnot for his writing. Okay, so yeah, like one uh, uh, to enjoy. I would say the first half of this book in particular. I think you need to have a respect bordering on fascination for the United States military and its many implements of destruction. Okay. Like <laughs> because a, a lot of it, like there, there are just huge passages where it's just like, here's a, here's a gun. Here's what an M4 is. And here's how the M4 in this book is a little bit different, but not that different from the one that you're familiar with. And it's just talking about <laughs> like planes and guns. And it's just like, here's all this, here's all these tech specs about this stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, that's that's like the the boring end of it, and then the the more interesting end of it is is when he's getting into like the nature of of command. Mm, um, yes, like like a commander will tell you that that commanding is the hardest part because you're just sitting on a chair and you're waiting to see how your plan goes. But in reality, the hardest part is being a grunt because you're the one who's on the ground, like putting your life on the line for for whatever objective you're trying to achieve it's yeah okay it comes it comes close to being profound sometimes <laughs> well and but it's but but it's it, but it's in this it's it's in this tradition where yeah this is very specific to a military perspective in i don't i don't think that allenson reaches quite as far as he could if he wanted to say something about the nature of war and the nature of the military, especially if you're writing, I mean, this came out in 2016, especially if you're writing in this like post Iraq war, like war yeah, on sure. era. Sure. Um, you know, he, I, I don't think he, I don't think he's exploring it as much as he could be, but yeah, but, but that's, I'm glad you laid that groundwork. Cause that's, that's going to be relevant to our discussion of this entire book. Well, let's. Uh, why don't you start telling me about it, and then maybe we can pick apart some other stuff as we go. That sounds like a fun podcast. Someone should make that. Okay. Well, I'll I'll start. I'll hit record now, and we can start. Okay. The podcast. <laughs> uh, Columbus Day. Yeah. What about you it? You know about it? You heard about that one? Fourteen ninety two. Columbus sailed yeah, the ocean blue. <laughs> That's how this this book begins. Is it is Columbus Day in the modern era? There's iPads. That's that's as modern. So it's like sometime after 2010, <laughs> I think, is when the iPad came you, out. Were, were you working like in tech writing when the iPad came out? Did you have to cover the iPad? No, I was, I was in IT still, so I I didn't have to cover the iPad. Didn't have to. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't have to write about it, but I did have to have and use an iPad because a bunch of people were going to know it was like suddenly know what an iPad was <laughs> and have all kinds of questions about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. I wasn't actually writing about like covering stuff until the first iPad air came out, which is 2013. I love so. that. I can point to parts of your life based on products. Based on exist. what iPhone came out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. So we're li- this book is set in a post iPad world. The post, the, the it's a near iPad, iPad future, <laughs> um, and it and it is Columbus Day, and what happens to the Earth on this day is something from space, Uh-oh. hammers all of Earth's like power generating infrastructure, and then starts to send like spaceships down to the planet. Okay, and so they EMP'd us. They didn't, it's not an EMP. It is the, there's this this weapon that they call a rail gun. Yeah. Okay. Which uh, shoots ammunition at like near light speed into stuff, and so it's a way to cause a huge but localized amount of damage. Cool. Okay. So they hit power plants mainly and like major manufacturing facilities all over the planet. They Great. knock out all the power. It's bad. 
And then one of these spaceships crash lands in this like rural, this, this rural community in northern Maine, I think. I don't remember. I don't remember. It's northern Maine. It's just Maine. It's in Maine. Sure. All of Maine is pretty north. In, so. in Stephen King town, basically. Basically. He's, maybe he's there. Who knows? Maybe he got, maybe, yeah, maybe he's there <laughs> writing his books. Um, and this guy, this fella named Joe Bishop, who we spend the entire novel in the head of. Okay, Joe Bishop. Is, Joe Bishop. He, he was, he's U.S. Army, he was in Nigeria, and he's home, like, sort of visiting family when this stuff happens, and he along with a few, uh, like a ragtag group of misfits in this community, um, manages to capture one of these alien beings that's suddenly invaded Earth. Because their their ship has crashed, like it obviously wasn't intended to be where it is because there are no vital, there's no like vital infrastructure, there's not much of anything up here. It's just a ship has gotten lost and it's crashed and they don't really know what's going on, but they figure maybe we capture one of these guys and try and figure out what's up. Okay, okay. Um, so they capture this thing that looks like a like a large sentient hamster, basically. It's Define this, it, large. Um, person size, like small person sized, I would say. Okay, like five feet, maybe. I don't know if you want to like put numbers on it. Sure. I'm not, okay, listen. The, the hamster not, can be as like big a, as it needs to be. <laughs> it's not like a big dog. It's like a okay. small person. Does it wear clothes? Yeah. Oh, crap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that weirded me out. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, so they capture the large clothes-wearing hamster. They capture this large clothes-wearing hamster, and they can't communicate, but... Joe and his ragtag band, they, you know, they, they are humane in their treatment of this creature. It's wounded, so they fix it, and nobody can understand anybody, but there is, like, a rough, not a respect, but, like, a humaneness to the interaction between this alien and its captors. Well, and, you know, which is which is in and of itself, like, they know that the hamster is of a superior hamster like species that just knocked out the internet. Well, they and power they, and they know that, but also this is an invading force and it's the enemy. And you know, yeah, if, we, if yeah. we were gonna, if we were just out for blood, we sh- we would just like knock its head off and be done with it yes. instead of like giving it first aid and granola bars and stuff. Tasty. Um. What happens shortly after this is another force jumps into Earth orbit and chases all the hamster people away. This is called this is a race called okay, so the hamster race is called the Ruhar. Okay. And the new race that has come in is called the Kristang. Man. And Earth sort of hails the Kristang as saviors because they chase away. It's another alien force that chases away this apparent invasion. Okay. Now, the book starts with a thing that basically tells you not all is as it seems. And so you are immediately (laughs) suspicious of this second alien force's motivations. Sure, sure. Um, But... uh, what happens is humanity gets brought into this sort of long-running interstellar war, and all the nations of of Earth send people from their militaries to train on this other planet, and they're gonna they're going to operate as like allies slash like a subsidiary force to the Kristang in this this great war against the hamster people. Why do the Kristang need us to fight their foreign space wars? So here's the here's the most interesting thing about the book I think is maybe the the world building. Okay. Um now there are apparently like at least 7 to 8 to 20 books in this series. So there yes. Maybe it holds maybe that Four, is really 14, what holds water. not counting the like Lion King one and a half like <laughs> alternate perspective <laughs> novels. My favorite expeditionary force novels are about Timon and Pumbaa, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hakuna Matata. They get caught by the Hakuna Matatas actually at one oh point. Oh my good gracious. <laughs> um so the Ruhar and the Kristang are on different sides of this thing, right? On this big old big war. Yeah. So they say. And each of them each of them has like a, a patron 
species that is more, you know, more powerful, more technologically advanced. And then there's another layer or two even above the layers that are above the Ruhar and Kristang. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So humanity is to the Kristang what the Kristang is to some like Borg-esque, like half cybernetic race. Yeah. Sure. So like, uh, you know, we did some table setting on this as a like a explicitly a military kind of story and so i'm sure that this is all like laden with interstellar conflict i'm reminded a little bit just of like recent sci-fi we've read so like we did the the butler's Xenogenesis book we did that one that you read that was like the people came and groomed the space people came and groomed us because we were psychic what was that one childhood's end or the the arthur c clark book <laughs> i have no memory <laughs> And those were not probably I read it. I don't those know. were not like um, big military fight books, but there is a sense of like this more powerful race shows up and starts to shepherd a a lesser developed race for its own purposes. Um, that's okay. It's interesting that it's like Matryoshka dolls up is what you're saying. It's like there's right. always a either a forerunner race or a more powerful race or something like there that. There is a this is a larger conflict that that humanity has found itself inserted. In. And it's and it's worth pointing out at at this juncture that Allenson like he had, he had come up with a couple of major characters in their arcs and he had come up with like the basic structure and some things that he wanted to happen. So yeah, this was always intended to be a big thing and so what he has done in this first book is create a big universe with enough wiggle room that he can keep building out in future books and kind of go whatever direction he wants to. Like this is all exclusively from Joe Bishop's point of view. I sure do hope that some of the other books are from someone else's point of view sometimes (laughs) because Joe, old Joe gets a little, uh, tiring. Just just a little, just a little wearing sometimes. Just like, Joe, can you just have a headache and (laughs) I'm tired. Like, can we just, can we go do something else for a minute? Can, can we leave this bar, Joe? Like, I don't need to listen to the same Nickelback song five times. Let's yeah, get out Joe. of here, Joe. But just like there, there's so when it, when I'm talking about Martian esque voiciness, oh sure, yeah, yeah. Everybody has a story from that day. This is my story, so shut up and listen. Yeah, it's all like oh, so he, oh, so he's, somebody he's you're somebody reading a book, and I'm gonna. I'm going to break the fourth wall and talk to you. Like he does that sometimes when he puts things in all caps. Is there like, a, I put, I put that in all caps because it's important. Does he say that? Yeah. Is he? Okay. I'm, I'm, I am well, paraphrasing, yeah. but yeah, he does do is, that. Well, okay. Times. What is the in fiction device? Is he like, right. Is he recording into a tape recorder? Is he like, no, writing it's this just, in his it's live just journal? like you're in his head and he's, it's not. Okay. Okay. It's never a thing where, you're just you're just in his head or over his shoulder the whole time. There's no there's no framing Captain's device. Log. There's no yeah right. Okay. Okay. Um, so the what are the Kristang like? You have not described them at all. They're um, like lizard boys. Yeah. So if the Ruhar are hamster boys, then the Kristang are lizard boys. Okay. And they are lizard boys because they oh. don't they don't let their women fight. The women mostly are just for breeding. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> it's just there so there aren't a lot of women in this book in the first okay, place. Sure. And I'm not This is tough. It's t- cuz like this guy Craig Allenson like he seems fine. He's like carved out a little niche of the internet and the publishing sphere and people seem really enthusiastic about his books and they seem like they like him and I read this and I like didn't like it, but also have a reputation for like being all grumpy and oh, Andrew hates everything and he's a robot and he doesn't have any emotions. And I'm just like really kind of over that characterization of me right now. Sure, that's fair. So I don't want to just like hop into this guy's little corner of the universe and be like, I didn't like his book. But Joe really made me upset a couple of times. Here's let me just read you this passage about him getting a checkup from a female doctor. Um. She looked bored. Do I need to take my shirt off, ma'am? I was hoping I could keep my pants on. 
It was embarrassing enough standing around in my boxer shorts in front of a male doctor. With a female doctor, it was worse. I mean, I didn't want my friend to be obviously happy to see her, if you know what I mean. But maybe it was worse if he didn't rise to the occasion. The doctor was cute, and I was a healthy guy, so I felt that out of respect for her, I should at least have a semi. What? <laughs> okay. And it's not like the whole book is like that, but most of the time when a woman is in it, it's all about like her shapely behind. Yeah. The, and okay. like the degree to which you should have a boner about it. And yeah. So, okay. Dude, so my immediate reaction not, to that, can we please not? My immediate reaction to that is um, if it's not, it, it stands out. If it's as a, like a what, if it's not balanced by any other women characters existing, because there's a version of that, to me that could be read in a like comic sarcastic tone akin to something like the TV show catastrophe, which I just watched where like characters can say inappropriate things because they know they're inappropriate and it's like meant to be funny. And then you move on. Um, but there's it a like moment there's... like that a little bit earlier where he says that you need to talk loudly and slowly to foreigners because they're stupid and that's the only way they understand you. And that's that, that is not, I don't think from reading the rest of this book that this is a thing that Joe Bishop or Craig <laughs> Allenson actually earnestly believes. It is a, it is a mocking. It's a thing that this character is doing in a moment of stress. And we're supposed to see that and be like, that's the, you, you're dumb, you dummy. That's not how it goes. Yeah. 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 But this um, one that what the word semi does a lot of work there for me to be not okay with the It passage. does a lot of bad like cuz everything is worse than the thing before it because first he's talking about his friend being happy to see her. Yeah, it okay. There's another section later where he describes sex as being awesome, which I mean <laughs> For who? He just talks. He just talks about it for for a while. Let me. I, I didn't. Have, I didn't have this pulled up. I mean, I it guess, could like. Let me do pull it up. Inherent. Um, in, in the meantime, I'll read this other passage. <laughs> Fort Arrow even had a large swimming pool. The best feature of which was being able to see female soldiers in swimsuits. Hey, ayo. You know. So this becomes a a. I guess a, it. It can be a distracting element of the read, right? If because it is a point of view novel, there's nothing balancing it. Can you remember? Because you, I think you had a similar reaction to The Martian. I think you had a similar reaction to, to Andy Weir's Martian Boy. In a like, just like cool it, dog. That seems to be your reaction to Joe Bishop. Is like, just like tone it down a bit. Great. She swung her legs out from the blanket, stuffed her feet into boots, hopped to her feet, and kissed me on the cheek. I'll call you. That kind of freaked me out. Then she did call two nights later, and we wore out the truck's springs. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean... For those of you who've had sex, I won't bore you with sweaty details of me and Shauna. You know what it's like, and I'm sure we didn't do anything you haven't done before or wanted to do. For those of you who haven't, I won't spoil the surprise for you. Hint, A-W-E-S-O-M-E. Wow. Okay. I've, and so I've if wait, I was no. fifth, no, if I, well, okay, well, I'm going to let you respond to that because I've had a lot of time to, <laughs> to I may, think about it. That passage in particular may mm. have flipped a switch uh -huh. in me in that I want, I think it makes... Oh man, maybe it explains why the audiobook is popular. Cause like I would listen to a late night radio show with this guy, and maybe I wouldn't <laughs> agree with everything he says, but I would I would then like text you the ridiculous stuff that he said as like, and can you believe and, this guy? And it's worth noting that I'm combining like all the boner references into one like two minute chunk of yeah, podcast. they're they're spread out over the book, right? Well, they're mostly concentrated in like the first third of it. Oh, actually. interesting. Okay. I mean, because you do get one or two little tiny male gaze moments 
later in the book, but most of this time for it. Most of most of the stuff where it's like a fifteen year old explaining to another fifteen year old what sex is like is all in the beginning and then it's done. That is the part that is so wildly entertaining to me. The relationship to the reader that is like, well, if you have had sex, you get it. And if you haven't, don't let me spoil it. Like that no mode. No spoilers, bro. <laughs> that mode of conversation with the reader get like I don't know if I actually want to read it, but I'm excited it exists. I have it like it just seems crazy. See, man, now you're just backing up that the popular perception of me versus you, which is like you're excited about this and I wrote in my notes multiple times, kill me, kill me, I wish but, I was dead. But I didn't have to. But here's the thing, Andrew. I didn't have to read it. I That's didn't have true. to be in this guy's brain. So I just get to be over here being like, man, I'm glad that guy exists over there. Right? Like away from me. <laughs> I would like to encounter him through the radio and not in a bar. Um, But so like you're saying this is a third of the book? I'm not saying that 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 it's no, all like of what a third, third of the book no, 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 is. No. I'm saying that it's mostly contained in the part of the book where you are getting to know Joe Bishop, table setting for what the like alien conflict is. Um, everybody gets moved to this planet called Paradise for sort of training slash peacekeeping. Sure, which in Okay. military parlance it means like pointing a gun at somebody and you don't want to use it but you will yeah and at this point um, the what are they the the it's not christops what are they the christang the christang they are ostensibly still good guys they're perceived to be good guys yeah okay so like what is the what is the rest of joe's arc in this book like what is he sent off to do so Joe is on this planet called Paradise. It's a planet where the Ruhar have ruled, but the Kristang recently took control. There are some rules of engagement that say, like, no nukes, no uh, biological weapons, like some basic, like, Geneva Convention-y kind of stuff that governs conflicts because if you let it get out of control, then nobody has anything, and we want to fight, but we don't want to fight that bad. Sure, sure. Um, okay. And so what is happening is the the Ruhar are in an orderly fashion being asked to evacuate the planet so the Kristang can can take it over. And because humans are a new and untested and a like uh technologically inferior species, their first like kick in the tires mission is to help facilitate this organized evacuation. Okay. Okay. So Joe goes and is on this planet with a with a unit of guys and is assigned to a relatively remote village and has um has established a friendly enough rapport with some of the locals this is um i think the book is most closely talking about sort of the the occupation of of Iraq and a lot of the um, like counterinsurgency stuff that was big, especially, I mean, I think it still goes on now to a lesser extent, but was big in the like mid to late two thousands is you have a U.S. troop presence, right? But their, but their main duty and, and what is happening with a lot of the other organizations that have come in like USAID and, and others is to pour resources into the relation in, into the region and then build a relationship with the locals. And the point is to gradually get us troops out while leaving an infrastructure behind and also giving people like less, like fewer reasons to radicalize. That, yeah. Future, that sounds right. right. Yeah. Um, um, well, what's interesting too, is it sounds like it is by, by focusing on that, it is very quickly pivoted from what I expected the book to be based on its title. Like it is inverted what I expected it to be because like what'd you expect it to be? Because so, there's still time where it's gonna <laughs> probably get to what oh, you expect it to be. Because like the Col invoking Columbus Day, right? Like Columbus Day is this thing uh, that commemorates an Italian man and his boats settling <laughs> in. <laughs> Uh, already s settling, quote unquote, discovering, quote unquote, 
um, lands in the wet in the you know Western Hemisphere in the Americas, um, probably uh, enslaving and killing people in the process, and it is a holiday that celebrates um, immigrants. If you look at it from the view of Italian immigrants here in the United States, because that's when it yeah, became very popular. It, it celebrates immigrants if you're Italian. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like and it became very popular at a point where Italian immigrants were facing a lot of discrimination. So it was like kind of a way to reclaim that heritage and, and you know, make the nation feel better about it. But it is also like it is a symbol for colonialism and, and the horrors thereof. Um and so you see a lot of folks now, like there are actual states that don't recognize it as a federal holiday <laughs> right now, which I didn't know. Um, and none of them are on the East Coast. Um, they, it, it is also now kind of being reclaimed as like Indigenous Peoples Day or various kind of native cultures um, being honored on those days in response to what it was in the first place. So I was expecting this book to be more about the like a colonization of Earth. Yeah, so you didn't let me get far enough. Oh, okay, great. Okay, okay. You interrupted me with your profound point too soon, and now I'm going to make you look like a dumb idiot. Yes! Uh, <laughs> um, so what happens is a representative of the Ruhar, like some kind of higher-level administrator person, comes to this village and asks to speak to Joe. And it's specifically because he was in charge of this little, like, group of people who took this soldier and treated him well. And so the Ruhar have identified him as a guy who might be willing to listen or, or, you know, amenable to conversations with, with the Ruhar. Okay. And so what this person, what this, what this hamster person tells Joe is you got it. You got it all wrong. The Ruhar. All right. (laughs) Earth was recently, added to the interstellar map because of the way that faster than light travel works in this universe, which is faster than light engines exist, but you mostly use wormholes to traverse, especially long distances, wormholes that were set up by this ancient race called the elders. We don't understand their technology. We just use it. Great. Um, And I'm sure it's explored more in uh, future expeditionary force novels, whatever makes sense. Um, so, but but the wormholes are a bit volatile, and recently one opened up near Earth, making it easier for Kristang and Ruhar soldiers both to get there. Like it, it had been previously, like clocked, but the technology wasn't advanced enough. The resources weren't, you know, tempting enough. It was just too far out of anybody's way for anyone to bother with. But because of a recent shift in wormhole activity, now Earth's on the map. Um, the Kristang were headed toward Earth to take it over. The Ruhar managed to beat them there and knock out a bunch of vital infrastructure to make the planet less useful to the Kristang. Oh. And so what looked like an invasion was actually a like a preemptive strike of sorts. And so what the the Columbus Day metaphor is basically what you're saying and it is this this uh parallels made pretty explicit in the book a couple times but humanity is is caught in between these two technologically superior races and think about it like if you want to talk about like the the french and indian war yeah, or something yeah, yeah, to yeah. use an example that actually was i was wondering where, yeah where indigenous like native people were brought into the war effort were used to some extent by both sides, but neither side really cared what happened to, to the indigenous people beyond their like utility in the, in the war effort. Okay. And so that's the, that's the position that earth and all of humanity is, is in at this point. And the Kristang one, Hey guys, you're out on this planet and all your communications and you rely on them for food. Like everything is going through the Kristang. You are wholly reliant on them. Maybe that was a bad idea. <laughs> and two, have you heard from Earth lately? Because things are going bad there because the Kristang are starting to like convert some of it 
for their own use because obviously like food and, and livestock and stuff that that's indigenous to earth is not necessarily what the, the Christang eat or what they can use. Um, Oh, so they like brought their space cows or whatever, or making us yeah, grow like, their space vegetables. Protests against the Christang are frowned upon, and in fact, are lasered from oh orbit gosh. most of the time oh, if they're sufficiently dear. large. Okay. Um. So is, is the, the Ruhar like, there, like are been... they actually good, 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 or are they just like we can at least believe the story that they're telling of their in, first in this book you you learn eventually through a third party that i'll talk about in a little bit um the like uh, neither neither race is like trying to be a benefactor to humanity but the ruhar tell them most of the truth they leave out some stuff but they tell them most of the truth and the ruhar and their like the species higher up the chain from them generally do try to treat the conquered planets or, or conquered people humanely where the Christang and their, you know, their, their patrons, not patrons because patron, I mean, patron in like the, the, the pa- arts <laughs> sense, like the, like the patronage. Thing. Sure. Yes. Like yes. The, yes. Like the Medici's. <laughs> Okay, yes, I know what you're saying. Their benefactors do, like, they are only too happy to kill people who are not useful to okay. them. Okay, Like, it, sure. I think it it is significant that the Borg-like race that is never called Borg-like, even though people do make Star Trek references in this book, of course they do. Oh, man, yeah, okay. They're on the bad side. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, so this is like, there's iPads... Star Wars has happened, Star Trek has happened, and now hamsters and lizards. Oh my! Mm-hmm. Okay. So I mean, th- there are some, there are a couple different conflicts. Joe finds himself like when the Ruhar are still thought of as the bad guys, he like goes rogue and and with a small unit of people shoots down a couple ships and gets like a field promotion to colonel. And then the Ruhar come back and they take paradise back over and Joe gets thrown and he gets locked in a, he gets locked in a little cell and next, like next door to the cell that he's in wonder of wonders. He meets this little cylinder thing. He calls it a beer can. And if it sounds like I'm talking about a totally different book now, it's cause it kind of <laughs> does become a totally different book. Like it's this alien survival thing world building thing for a little while and then he meets a talking beer can that he calls Skippy because he's so irreverent and funny and Skippy is an alien AI like built by the elders yes and he can control like all kinds of computers yes and and he's but and he's really irreverent and he's like a big jerk (laughs) it's like what if Navi from Ocarina of Time was just like cussing at you all the time (laughs) (laughs) okay and i imagine uh skippy also like knows way more about the universe oh yeah knows tons about the universe knows all the the expository information that needs to be dumped on our human soldiers humans who he thinks are so primitive that he calls them monkeys all the time great um okay because because it's like hamsters lizards monkeys like they're all these every species kind of has a beer cans beer cans. i yeah, love right. playing space versions of civilization because it's like there's always a hamster race and a lizard race and mm-hmm. a beverage race and a lava planet yeah. and an ice planet and <laughs> it's all very sense. predictable this is good um okay is there like a is there a uh, we've we've joked about the two dozen books in this series um, what is the like MacGuffin or like what's the finish line for this one? All right, so Skippy's like, here are my rules that I have because if I didn't have these rules, the book wouldn't work. Sure, I can't. Whatever programming I have inside me prohibits me from communicating with species that have discovered faster than light travel. So humanity has not done this itself yet. 
they're reliant on other races for it. And so Skippy cannot talk to the Ruhar, the Kristang. What a weird restriction. What a weird restriction, right? It's almost like an arbitrary thing that was assigned to this character to make the entire rest of the plot work. Oh. We're going to talk about that <laughs> also. Um, okay. And Skippy is, he was part of this big, like, the, the elders transcended basically it's not clear what happened oh yeah i think that's that's something that gets handled in in subsequent that's books. a sci-fi trope i'm, I'm or um, like isn't there like a thing in tolkien where like ra- some races of elves have just like gone to another elf island i mean that's going that's going to valinor in the west it's a t- slightly different thing this is i don't have if i don't, we don't have, have the, time. the time okay we don't have the time <laughs> Remember in Slack when Catherine asked me to explain the second age to her no. and it, I went for like 20 minutes and I was like, yeah, that's the short version. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's going to do so what? So he's, he used to be part of like the elder race has ascended. He used to be part of this like collective built of like technology or consciousnesses or something that they left behind, but he's been cut off from it for a long time. So he wants to get back there and because humanity is a race that he can communicate with, he sees them as his most like convenient vehicle out. And so because he has basically magic powers that can control any computer or anything that's like networked, it's it's very Cylon-y. Yeah, that makes sense. When um, you were talking about the whole like no nukes thing earlier, I was wondering when the book was going to introduce whatever its like future tech was. And this seems to be what it is. Okay. Um Skippy single-handedly pretty much enables the technologically inferior humans to circumvent Ruhar and Kristang systems and do all this stuff. I want to... So the first half of the book, its weakness is that it often gets bogged down in like mundane descriptions of planes and guns and military stuff. Okay. The second half of the book, if you can get over both Joe and Skippy having basically the same Deadpool (laughs) voice, the main issue is that there is no scrape that they can get into that their omniscient beer can AI persona cannot get them out of. Okay. They're on a ship that they've stolen from the Ruhar, and they're trying to grab stuff that they need to... What they're trying to do is they're trying to shut the wormhole near Earth down. Makes sense. So that stuff can't get to Earth anymore. Like, they got to get to Earth. They got to wipe out whatever token force the Kristang has left there. And then they need to make it so that other... It's too hard for other alien species to get back to Earth. And they also have to wipe out any trace of humanity's involvement in this operation. So that no one comes looking for them. get mad and come looking for them. This feels like a good close to the first installment of this series like you like because someone can always come back right someone else can always show up Uh uh-huh okay this makes sense so they're trying to get the remote control for the wormhole essentially and also this communications array that might help skippy communicate with his elder ai (laughs) collective thing um and they're on this ship and they're like we're we're trying to invade this kristang base that they have fortified against the uh the thurinen which is the the race that the Kristang is subservient to the Borgish mm-hmm, folks mm-hmm. that I was talking about. And they don't have spacesuits and they just they they are they're in a corner because they don't really have a lot of resources. And Skippy says that there are combat basically combat droids on the ship. Combat droids? Are there combat droids aboard the ship? Of course, there's three dozen of them in the ship's armory. There is an implied duh in Skippy's voice. 38 units to be exact. Armory? What armory, I asked. We have combat robots, Gerard demanded. I don't know. How, that's a, It's French. This would have been a good thing to know before I spent days planning an assault. There are combat ro- robots, rifles, rockets, all kinds of toys in the armory. It's located after the command section. It's kind of hidden. You have to know where it is. Why the heck? I did, I'm not cussing because it's a clean podcast. Why the heck didn't you tell us about this? I didn't try to keep the frustration out of my voice. Well, Joe, you didn't ask, Skippy grumbled, and I'm not going to volunteer to tell a bunch of monkeys where they can find dangerous toys to play with. It's that kind of stuff where 
they have a problem and they talk about the problem for a while. And then Skippy's like, well, I'm an absent minded, but still omniscient AI. And here's the problem. There's the solution to your problem. Sure. And from what it's, and it all feels very easy. And just yeah. like they kind of, there are moments of suspense that they try to build, but every, every rule is arbitrary. Like everything is so obviously constructed to either play into Skippy's capabilities or, like defeat his capabilities in a very, very specific way in like the extremely, in the few circumstances where he is not omniscient and can't do anything. Like they just happen to run into (laughs) to a few of those (laughs) scenarios to introduce some tension to the thing. But it's, well, it doesn't sound like it's character based uh, tension, right? Cause it doesn't sound like it does. Joe doesn't have other people he's invested in. You haven't mentioned anyone else other than a beer can. Listen, there are other people. There's a guy yes. from the Chinese army who's named Colonel Chang. Sure. But like it's it because doesn't of course he is. But it doesn't sound like he has like long-standing friendships that have developed or like people he is worried about losing who then All the people like he they the the book puts in some work on paradise, but all those people get left on paradise. Oh yeah. And so they're okay. there for future expeditionary force novels because one of the hanging threads is what are well, those we people? might just yeah. we might just end up cutting off everybody on paradise. Okay. Okay. And the hamsters seem like benevolent rulers and they have food and like they might be able to survive, but those people may never see home again but the book puts in enough effort to characterize them that you know they're going to come back in some future book (laughs) this book ends with them jumping through that like they go to earth there's a woman president if you can believe it Ugh. um well just like what if it's what if she's on her monthlies and she hits the nuke button you know that's what that would be bad i can't i can't i can't with that (laughs) I can't. I, I, if you pass me that ball on a court, I would just put it down and walk away. I'm hitting the showers. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. They go back to Earth and they do some stuff, and then they're okay. We're gonna head back in this. We've defeated the Kristang. Earth this is, time. Earth is safe. Sure, but it is worse than before. But it is safe. And they temporarily shut off the wormhole, which happens to have like a timer built into it because they didn't shut it off in a specific way, which is another mm. construct of stuff that needs to happen to make the plot of the book work. And so the, at this, the end of this book is they jump through the wormhole, they shut it off from the other end, and, oh, now, okay, they're, okay. and now they are on the other end and they're going to go do other stuff. I buy that as a way to, to propel you into future books. That's a, that's a device that because at that point you at least have to make a sacrifice. Like you can't go home again. Maybe you can, but not this. And time. And they've like developed a plan to maybe get home again and to maybe go back to paradise. Like there's a lot of stuff that could that could happen. And then they've also got all these other people who are out there who could pose trouble for them. And there are enough characters who aren't bishop who you could go back to and and meet and hang out with for a while. It's just. So, yeah, what you said earlier was that, like, he clearly has a whole big universe of fiction for this thing, and this story just happens to be Joe Bishop hanging around pools talking to a beer can. I want to I wanna close with something that Allenson wrote on his website. How do you handle rejection and bad reviews? Mm-hmm. Um, regarding bad reviews, I ignore them. All authors should ignore bad reviews. Most bad reviews essentially are saying, I don't like this type of book or I didn't enjoy this particular book. Every review expresses one person's opinion and nothing more. That includes good reviews. What matters is whether you enjoyed a particular book. Only you are an expert on what you enjoy and don't enjoy. This is why your mom should not have forced you to try Brussels sprouts or fish sticks. One. Brussels sprouts, the best. They're delicious. Don't come for Brussels sprouts. It's like asparagus that doesn't make your pee weird. Taste wise. <laughs> Two. I agree with what he says about reviews in general. Yeah. Most most bad reviews essentially are saying, I don't like this type of book or I didn't enjoy this particular book. That is what I am saying. 
Sure. He's, I don't I don't enjoy this voice. I didn't like it in The Martian. I didn't like it in Ready Player One. I didn't really like it here. Sure. It's just a, it's just a it's a it's an immature sort of sort of voice that doesn't that that just doesn't stand up to I don't know what I'm even saying. It doesn't about sound it. like just a dude I just you want to like hang it. out with. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to hang out with this guy. Yeah. That's fair. Because again, I am like I am fully a decade and a half past when I would ever talk about a woman like like this. So that's that that is mainly what I'm bouncing off of, but I'm I'm bouncing off of of all of it. Okay. Um I don't buy what he says about ignore like all authors should ignore bad reviews i agree as somebody whose podcast gets bad reviews occasionally often it is just like somebody venting or somebody not saying anything useful just saying i hate this and you're gonna read it and you're gonna even if you have a hundred good reviews for every bad one you're gonna feel like crap about it and it's gonna like burrow its way into your brain and just make you feel bad about this thing you've made I understand the impulse not to read bad reviews, but enough people take the time. And this was true of the Goodreads reviews of this book that I read, by the way. Enough people take time to qualify their criticism and try to dig into it and explain it, which I hope I have done in the course of this episode, that I think you can, as an author, learn something or have your attention called to something like there, there have definitely been bad reviews that the show's gotten that have made me rethink like what we're focusing on or just like, or have maybe backed up something that I've, that I've privately thought to myself and just like, just like minor little tweaks that we can try to make to, to improve things. It's also like with, with even a book too, that's actually an interesting way to think about it. Cause like our show you, we talked about before is like, it's six years old. So sometimes people are responding to things we recorded five years ago. And like, if we were to do that episode again, we might hit something else or we might, if you were to come to me and say that complaint to my face, I would say, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I totally yeah. agree with this and, thing and that you so said like, about some dumb stuff I said four years ago. There's an element of like iteration to all creative work or you know podcasting as much as it's creative work or whatever type of thing it is um that a someone expressing their opinion on a thing you made is of a moment in time and it's worth considering that too and so like how what have you already thought about what you would do differently like i'm sure as he's like churning these books out he's like "Mm, i want to do more of this or based on what people are interested in i focus on this character instead or here's this other race that i thought up in space that we ha- we didn't even have time for that is way more on his you know, yeah on his on his little flow chart on his website he does have a couple of races mentioned that just don't that just aren't in this book at all so yeah there's and that's that's the that that is the clever like sustainable bit of world building that that he is doing in this book that where like he's, tiered he's giving thing? you he's yeah. giving you enough to get you interested while also leaving himself enough wiggle room that he doesn't like George R. R. Martin, his way out of being interested in writing his book. <laughs> yeah, because if you if you hem yourself in too much, and you find yourself unable to make certain things work, the easiest way to to deal with that is just to disengage with this fictional universe that you've created, and that's like that's not fun. You yeah, know? yeah. It's it feels like at least from this book, the he could pretty much go anywhere, whereas certain series it kind of starts very broad and then the whole series is an act of winnowing down Mm -hmm. all right well i mean and maybe this one is too but you know with 14 books (laughs) he's got time as as somebody who has just cleared book 10 in his wheel of time reread, (laughs) 14 books is enough time to do pretty much whatever you want (laughs) well andrew thanks for telling me about craig allenson's expeditionary force number one columbus day yeah, I hope that my criticism was qualified and and well considered. Like if I if I didn't have a podcast to do, one, I wouldn't have read this in the first place. Two, I wouldn't have finished it. And three, I would definitely not have sat with my dislike and like interrogated it and tried mm. to be more specific about it. Well, I'm glad that you did that. Cuz I feel like this is like a genre that people are into 
and even maybe people who are into this genre may feel differently about this book. So. Yeah, and if you and if you read this and you like it, then that's you know that's fine. And that seem and especially the the audiobooks seem to have a pretty established yeah yeah fan yeah, yeah. base. So like, don't let my criticism of this thing wreck your enjoyment of the thing. I'm just telling you how I felt about the thing. Sure. And that's like you got space to enjoy what you like, and I have space to <laughs> dislike what I dislike, and we can all just like exist in the cosmos and be cool about it well yeah but i'm gonna open up a wormhole that people can send their comments through so you can send us an email about this that's twitter that's what twitter is about this podcast at overdue pod it's a wormhole so you don't have to come to my house and tell me the dumb (laughs) stuff you think i said send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com we still get some nice notes in the last week or so about andrew's uh what to expect news so thanks for that um, thanks for reaching out to us on twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, we got Julie, Lee, Ellen, Ann, Tanya, Hannah, Emma, Matthew, Ryan, Nathan, Lindsay, Jason, Jennifer, and May Moore making us feel good throughout the week by hitting us up there. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Um, up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, to Google Play, to RSS. Um, those are ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out every Monday. Um, we've also got a new listener page of books that we are particularly excited about. Um, you know, past books, not future books. Yeah. We also have future books though. Um, patreon.com slash overdue pod is our fundraising website. Give us money, get stuff. It's fun. Um, so scheduling note, our April schedule is going to go up pretty soon yeah sometimes we, we almost we almost have it finalized the most important thing for longtime fans of the of the show is that because of um some like family and and personal stuff as well as a, a trip that is coming up I don't think the final book in the Twilight series, Breaking Dawn, is going to be 350. I think it's going to be 351. Is that right? Yes. It'll still hit on the exact date I thought it would. I just did our internal calendar bad and missed a week. Got it. Good. So it's fine. Next week, we're going to do Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I'm going to talk about it. Um, Then we're going to hit up Breaking Dawn, and then you'll get the rest of the schedule from there. Also, this coming Friday, if you're listening to this the week it comes out, uh, March 29th, I believe, is the day we're going to drop uh, another episode of Stop Homer Time, our Odyssey podcast. So check that out. Cool, cool, cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us for another week. Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.